this is inherently a Ponzi scheme, essentially. If, if there's more debt than there's money, it means those debts in aggregate can never be paid down. It's not designed to ever end. It can only grow. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin, which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass, and to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Also today we have BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Morning. How are you doing, Lynn? Pretty good. Happy to be here. Uh, always happy to have you back. Danny's very excited about this show. Always. Danny's been down the rabbit hole the last couple of days. Uh, ever since we interviewed Jeff Snyder, there's been quite the healthy debate on Twitter. And... Uh, 
I've reached out to you. You said you don't agree with everything he says, but you agree with a lot of things he said, and he's opened our eyes to a few things. Danny's been, I think you've re-listened re to the show a couple of times, right? Yep, I re-listened it last night. Um, and I think we, like some others, uh, dis uh, discovered the euro dollar system for the first time, which was something I've heard of, but I'd assumed it was just like, this was just something to do with the um, uh, the Fed and it's the way they distributed dollars in, in Euro. I didn't actually have any idea what it was, what it meant. And uh, it's kind of this, I don't even know how to put it. We, we were talking about it last night. Is it basically a group of people have just decided to create their own money? Essentially, yeah. <laughs> I, I would describe it as bad technology. It's, it's okay. it basically the ramifications of having money that's not perfect or that has all these very clear limitations, right? So it's it's money that is both not completely audible, auditable and that is soft and inflationary enough that it encourages people to borrow it to buy other things. So the combination of it's basically has an incentive mechanism to keep growing and then it's hard to track where it is. Right. And that's a that's a bad combination. We need to go back a few steps on this and just go like get into the absolute basics of what it is because I know there were some questions regarding this. I think some other people like Hold on, what? They, it's just a group of offshore people creating their own money. I mean, we actually talked about it. We were like, "What could we? Could we create our own one? Could we create the peak <laughs> dollar, and we just trade it between ourselves and get get Jeremy on it." I mean, is that essentially what it was? Well, if, if for example, if I let's say like um, I owe you money, yeah, and I, and, or I say like, you know what, like uh, you you get us a round of coffees and I'll I'll pay you back later. We we've just created credit. Yes, and that is now an asset for you, and it's liability for me. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the fact that you're, you're pretty sure I have the money at some point. We can settle it. Um, and that's, a, that's essentially what modern money is. Most, mm -hmm. most money that we know of is money's credit, right? So, for example, our deposits at a bank are the bank's liability. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a form of credit. Mm -hmm. um, and they create, they create new broad money when they make loans. Um, and so all credit is basically all money in, in the current form, the, the currency that we know is a type of credit. And so in that sense, yes, you basically, you create it. Any two parties can create it, you, even us. But of course, it's much different when it's created at an institutional level. But yes, yeah, so the short answer to the question is you can create money anytime you essentially make a claim that you'll pay someone back later, and then they go and mark it down as an asset on their book. Okay, so where did the euro dollar start, though? How did it first get created? Well, that go, I mean, that goes back to the Bretton Woods era. Yeah. I mean, well, the funny thing is you could actually go back further because are you familiar with the Hawala system? Nope. So Hawala money transfer system, it's like a, a money transfer system that went from like, it still exists, but it went from like India to like Africa all across the Silk Road. Okay. And for hundreds of years ago, like, like, I mean, a thousand years ago. And basically it's like, if you want to transmit value and you want to bring gold with you, how can you do it? And one thing you can do is rely on a set of trusted intermediaries. So you have a network of like Hawala money brokers, and they know each other. They know each other's reputation. They know each other's like tribe and family, and, and they, they know each other very well. So basically, one person in city A can go to a Hawala money dealer and say, like, I want to send, you know, 10 ounces of gold to this person in another city. And that person in the city can then go to a, a different Hawala dealer. And those Hawala dealers, you know, they connected and they basically agreed to transfer value despite the fact that no value was physically transferred. They just, one of them owes the other one now. And so they have these going back and forth and they, they keep a, basically a ledger between themselves. Okay. So that, what essentially that is is a decentralized ledger. It's kind of mm. like analog Bitcoin. 
yeah. back like a thousand years ago. And it still exists. It, it runs parallel to the banking system. And so if you want to send money, that, that's one way to do it. If you don't have banking access or if you want to go around the banking channels, that, that's something that exists. And that's, that's pre-Eurodollar. Right. The Eurodollar system is basically just a modern version of that. So the, these systems pop up anytime you have some sort of shortcoming of money because you can't just teleport gold to someone. You have a problem. That's, that's where we get the Hawala system. And because dollars have limitations, we get the Eurodollar system. And so the Eurodollar system is basically just offshore dollars. And it's, you know, it, it kind of you can trace it back to the Bretton Woods era, so the, you know, say the 1950s, for example. You can trace it all the way back to then, maybe the 40s. And it's basically just dollars outside of the United States um, that are loosely tied to the fact that the dollar is the global reserve currency and that therefore it's, they're tied into that network effect. But there are no real dollars in this system. There are some. There are, okay. there are physical cash dollars overseas. I mean, most, most ca- it's funny, there's like more $100 bills than there are small bills, and most of those are overseas. But that's a small, very small piece of the puzzle. Most of the offshore dollar system is credit. It's, it's basically those series of claims, basically banks that owe other banks or corporations that owe dollars to banks, and all of that is offshore. So, for example, the, the Bank for International Settlements estimates that there's like $13.5 trillion of dollar-dominated debt that's off the United States. Uh, and so that's, and it's mostly not owed to the United States. For example, a, an entity in Europe might owe money to an entity in South America in dollars. Uh, or China, now they take a lot of their dollar surpluses because they run big trade surpluses with the United States. They get tons of dollars. They used to buy treasures with them. Now they go and they make loans to countries in Africa, countries in South America. Uh, and so they you have this huge system of dollar-based debts uh, and credit and, and, and banking systems outside the United States. And the difference is that, so in the United States, all the, all the domestic banks are, are tied to the Fed. Basically, the Fed, in Bitcoin terms, the Fed runs a full node for the onshore, <laughs> onshore dollar system. Yeah. They know roughly where all the dollars are. Uh, each, each big bank is like a, a partial node. Uh, and then the Fed basically pulls those together and keeps track of where all the dollars are. But if a dollar is like outside of that system, it's kind of like a side chain. Uh, and even the Fed doesn't really have a way to audit it. And so those are dollars that exist outside of it, but then are loosely connected to it. Didn't Jeff talk about, though, that these institutions uh, using the Eurodollar have a ledger between them that they all agree on? It, it'd be a series of ledgers. It's not, okay. like one, it's not like one spreadsheet that they're, you know, uh, pooling around. Okay, so is it just really a group of people understand, agreeing who owes what money to who? Yeah, a, f- a sophisticated version of that, yes. I'm just trying to think, how does that inflate? Is, does it inflate? Are they able to create their own new euro dollars? Yes, because whenever an institution, domestic or foreign, loans money, they essentially loan fiat currency into existence. So if I promise to pay you back $5, mm-hmm. you now have $5 in your asset, and you, that's, that's money for you, right? And so as an example, if I go to my bank and I want to get a car loan, I go to, I go to the bank... I say, look, here, you know, you know, I'm credit worthy. I want the loan, so they they put money in my account uh, that I can then use and, and give to the car dealer. They've they've created new broad money um, that is a liability for me and an asset for them. Um, and so that's that's essentially how it works. Basically, when you when and and actually, Safedin in his book, The Fiat Standard, goes into this, the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. That essentially, money creation as we know it, like if, how you quote unquote mine fiat currency, 
is you make loans for the most part. There are ways to bypass the system by the by the government. Um, that goes into the whole money printing thing. But most money creation historically happens because banks are making new loans. But there's some rules the banks have to keep to in terms of creating these loans. Yes, because they have assets and liabilities. Mm-hmm. And if their assets fall below their liabilities, they're insolvent. Yeah. Um, and so they have to make sure that when they make a new loan, which is a new asset for them, um, that it doesn't just go away because they've, they've, you know, they have capital on the line and their assets are some mix of, of risky or conservative loans. So, for example, conservative loans would be like they uh, make 30-year mortgages to someone with a perfect credit score or they own U.S. treasuries. Those are pretty conservative assets. Um, their riskier assets might be making car loans or credit card loans or things like that, right? And so if uh, some percentage of them, like let's say 10% of their loans don't get paid back, they're insolvent. Uh, that, that's roughly their buffer. Um, and so they have to be very careful. That's kind of the constraint on this. That's why I don't have like a quadrillion dollars, you know, created every week is because if, if those loans default, that bank's at risk. And the, U, the U.S. obviously can monitor and, uh, and manage the creation of dollars within the United States. But they really can't do much about the, euro, the creation of euro dollars. Not much, no. I mean, yeah, they, they, they're basically outside of the regulatory scope. So even in the United States, they have, they have a number of levers they can pull that accelerate loans or decelerate loans. But they, they don't have fine motor control over it because at the end of the day, it's, it's a bunch of individual transactions. People have to, one, demand loans. And then banks have to be willing to make those loans. So there are strong and weak levers that the that the government or the Fed can pull to uh, accelerate loan creation or reduce loan creation. But it's not like they can just pick a number uh, and have that many loans created. Um, then when you go outside of the U.S., because it's outside of the regulatory purview, uh, yes, they have even less control over that system and they have very little way to audit that system. And do we have any understanding of what the Fed thinks of this system? Is, is it good for them or is it bad for them? Uh, that'd be it's different over time, and that's actually where I mean Jeff he he like he pointed out he collects all the quotes from all the different officials and yeah. everything like that. One of the one of the famous quotes from from decades ago was "It's our money, but it's your problem." That's been one of the <laughs> that's been one of the old quotes. But but can does the creation of the the euro dollars does it like the growth of uh, the euro dollar does that does that does that cause uh, I'm trying to think how to word this. Does this have economic implications for the dollar in the U.S.? Yes, uh, I would say it. It structurally contributes to trade deficits yeah. in the United States, and it also causes financial problems when that system contracts. So, if there's a severe recession of some sort, like in you know the COVID crash, March 2020, or during the subprime mortgage crisis, 2008, when when large events like that happen, it ricochets back and it hurts U.S. markets. And the reason for that is, so if you go back to the BIS, they say there's over $13 trillion in dollar-based debts. Now, there's also, you know, depending on the number at any given time, we just had a, a pretty big market correction, so probably numbers are different. But let's say, roughly speaking, if you look at the IMF data, the U.S. data, foreign, foreign assets are something like 40 or $50 trillion in U.S.-denominated assets. Um, and that's built up by the fact that they've, they've, on average, not every country, but on average, they've run trade surpluses with the United States for decades. Let's say China, mm. for example, or Switzerland. And they get all these dollars, and then they buy U.S. assets with those dollars. So it could be treasuries. That's what they used to do. Now they increasingly buy stocks. They, they can buy U.S. real estate. So a Chinese firm could come in and then buy U.S. commercial real estate, or they can even buy a bunch of single-family homes. They buy U.S. assets. 
And one problem is that if there's ever a contraction in the euro dollar system, they start selling because they, they basically need dollars mm. because you know credit's being crunched, it's it's owed in dollars. Debt represents demand for that currency. So if you have a dollar-based debt, you have a demand for dollars because you have to service your debt. And so when you have these kind of crunches, everybody wants dollars at the same time. And one way you can get dollars is by selling your dollar-denominated assets. So for example, March 2020, there was a dollar shortage. And so the foreign sector in aggregate started selling treasuries to get dollars. So the treasury market went illiquid. And then the Fed had to reliquify it by creating dollars to buy treasuries. So they basically had to move the knobs around for how many dollars are in existence versus how many treasuries are in existence, at least outside of their, of their balance sheet, to, to placate the euro dollar system, essentially. And just to, just to repeat, what, why is it you think the euro dollar system is a bad system? You think it's bad money? Because it's, well, one, it's opaque. It's yeah. hard to audit. I mean, imagine like a, a blockchain that you, you don't really know the supply of. Okay. And you don't fully know the rules for how it's cre- you know new units are created or destroyed. Like you you kind of know, but you Ethereum? don't really know. <laughs> Is that Ethereum you describe it? Just a- any. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, number two, because it's it's fiat currency, it's just there's no constraint on supply really, other than basic rules, and it encourages debt accumulation because there's a natural incentive to borrow in something that gets weaker over time to buy something that get stronger over time, as long as you don't get over your skis. Right. So why has it expanded so quickly? Because of that incentive. Because there's, one, there's not a lot of checks and balances on it. And then two, you know, it's a couple of reasons. One is, if you want to make a foreign loan, right, if you want to loan money to someone in Argentina, uh, as a particularly extreme example, you don't really want to do it in their currency, right? Because they're going to pay you back in severely weakened currency. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, I'll loan you money, but it's going to be in something like dollars or euros or, or yen. It's going to be in a, like an international, you know, more stable currency. And the dollar is by far the biggest international lending currency because of the network effects and because of the reserve currency status. And so you'll loan someone in Argentina in dollars, um, but not their local currency. And so now in some countries that are less extreme, like let's say Brazil, they have the option of borrowing their own currency in many cases, but they'll pay a higher interest rate. So if they want to basically take some risk and get a lower interest loan, they might be willing to take a loan in dollars. But the risk is that if the dollar ever severely strengthens compared to their cash flows, which are probably in in Brazilian currency, they could be squeezed on that. So there's natural incentives for that to to kind of grow over time. Okay. This might sound super simple, but I just want to walk through the, the logic of how this works. So an Argentinian business wants to borrow dollars. They borrow from this bank. The bank then creates the loan, which becomes a liability for the bank. It becomes an asset for the it, bank. Asset for the bank, sorry, a liability, liability for the borrower, sorry. Yes. So, but the borrower then needs to access this these dollars. So do they go to a, how do they physically get the dollars? Does that get transferred from that bank to their local bank? Yes. So there will be a bank in Argentina that will accept that? Yes. What? Where's the actual, where's the actual money? <laughs> It's, it's just a ledger. I mean, for example, yeah. in, the, in the United States, you know, our broad money supply is over $20 trillion. Mm-hmm. Something like 90% of that is not paper money. Yeah, Paper money is a tiny percentage. Most of it is literally just ledgers. My bank says I have this much in my account. Uh, let's say you're an American. Uh, you, have, you have a certain amount in that system. You know, you could have dollars in your offshore account that's outside of that system. That, that's all basically, it's all ledger-based. But So they transfer it to the Argentinian bank. 
So the Argentine, what what actually happens there though? Like, because what I'm trying to understand, I know this is going to sound super dumb. What I'm trying to understand is is what has the Argentinian bank taken on? They've updated a ledger to say this person's account now has, say, this million dollars. Okay, but say this person comes in to withdraw, they want to get some of that. Say they need some cash from that. Where's that supply coming from? And what is the relationship between the two banks on this, say, million dollars? So, Because this is a bit I never understand. Yeah, well, one is that the vast majority of it would never be withdrawn. Okay. If you tried it, they just we don't have the physical dollars. Okay, but if That even happens, ironically, in the U.S. But it, like, let's say even they just spend it. They, they go and pay another supplier $200,000. Yes. What is the relationship between the ledgers? Because this is why I can never get my head around. It's a series of ledgers. There's no like one spreadsheet that they all have. Yeah. But one of the closest would be the, the Bank for International Settlement that tries its best to keep, keep track of all this. But each bank is managing their own ledger. Yes. Uh, and, and because it's double entry bookkeeping, their ledgers, you know, they, they have to reconcile with other banks. And there can be both loans and securities. Yes. Right. So a larger entity would generally borrow, you know, could could issue securities, bonds, um, whereas smaller entities will generally use loans. Um, and, and you use a mix of both as well. I still don't get it. I know I'm going to sound... Do you understand it? I think so, yeah. Explain it to me. So what what happened? Yeah. What has the Argentinian bank done? But I think you're getting hung up on the idea of actual dollars moving. And that no, it, doesn't, it doesn't even need to be that. But in the end, like, I don't understand the actual movement of the money. It goes back to the Hawala system. The whole point of that, that All system, promises. It's all so, promises. So what does the Argentinian bank, they, they've got a commitment to pay back yes. the million dollars to the other bank? Yes. Right. And generally the way it'll work is like, you know, a European bank will loan dollars to a South American bank. That bank will then loan some to their local corporation that actually makes something. Right. So they, own, they owe their bank. That bank owes this other international bank. Right. And you have this chain of so if, if one per, if one entity defaults, it can default up through the chain. So this this is how we just get massive expansion of the money. Then it's just all this credit being created. Yes, it's crazy. Um, I think I think it'd be interesting. Like, what um, are the benefits from this system? Like, have we has like the broader economy? Like, has there been social benefits? Like growth. I guess one of the steel main cases for it is let's say you are in Argentina. If there was no way to lend dollars to an entity in Argentina, would anyone loan them anything, right? Uh, and it would be hard to then bootstrap a new company, bootstrap some sort of, you know, operation. If you need for, if, if you want, if you don't have domestic stock of savings and capital and you want to access a more developed, richer country's capital, that's, that's a mechanism that allows it to happen. Now, and there are some countries that have made strong use of it. I mean, Taiwan, for example, right? I mean, there, there are countries that, you know, started impoverished, they borrowed money, they used it extremely productively, and now they're very wealthy, or pretty, you know, far more wealthier than they were. They have positive capital now, they have, uh, you know, pretty high per capita wealth, they're productive, they have current account surpluses. So that's that's the best case for why this system exists, that there, that there are people making use of it. If, it. if no one, if no participants were ever getting value out of it, it wouldn't exist. It's basically... We lack other language. We lack other ways to transfer value in a way that we expect it will be paid back. I guess there's no way to destroy it, though. Like, it will continue to exist. As long as dollars are recognized as money, some semblance of this will 
exist. It, it could exist in different forms and different sizes, but yeah. So there's even there's even like there's the euro dollar system. There's also the euro 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 system. It sounds funny or the euro yen <laughs> system. There are a euro uh, euro system. Yeah, it's because euro in this context just means it's offshore. offshore. Yeah. So there are, for example, euros in in North Africa yeah. or euros in in South America. It, they're just a much smaller network. So you, you do have these other fiat networks. It's just that the dollar is bigger than the rest of them combined. So weird. All right. Well, listen, the next thing I want to talk to you about is money printing because it gets referred to a lot. A lot of people talk about money printing, but I don't think we've ever been really clear on exactly what it is. The memes you see, helicopter money being distributed or the guy on the actual printer. I've never, we don't think we've ever gotten to like a, a very clear case of what is money printing and also what isn't money printing and who prints money. Like does, does the Fed print money? I mean, I know for the creation of dollars, they actually have to have print dollars, but do they, in the context where people are saying they're just creating new money, do they? The Fed creates base money. So that's actually the, the part of why this debate exists is that there's different types of money. Okay. Like we, we just talked about how money is credit. Yeah. Right. So base money is a liability of the Fed. And so, for example, a commercial bank will have bank reserves. Like where does where does the bank keep their savings account? The answer is at the Fed. Fed yeah. And so just like how your savings account at your bank is your asset and that bank's liability, the bank keeps their savings account at the Fed, which is again just a ledger on the on the with the Fed. And that's a liability for the Fed. Why do they need to do that? Because that they that's how they've chosen to construct the system. Right. Right. Okay. So if you go back to say a gold standard fiat banking era, uh, banks would self custody gold in their vaults. Yeah. And that would be their core collateral. Uh, people could deposit gold. People could withdraw their gold. They could make loans based on the gold. Hmm. Um, but instead, we've replaced gold with mainly two things. One is savings at the Fed. So so you know that they store their their quote unquote cash at the Fed. Or two, they hold treasuries. They hold, you know, nominally risk-free securities, and those two assets form the, you know, quote-unquote risk-free part of the asset base for, for banks. And so the short answer is the Fed can create base money, uh, but they can't create broad money by themselves. There are other ways to do it, but they can't do it themselves. Meaning that the Fed can't put a hundred dollars in my account. They, you know, they can buy treasuries from my bank and give them more cash in, in, in exchange for those treasuries or mortgage-backed securities. But they can't then go to one of their customers and just say, you know, we're just going to give you $100 and not take anything. They can't do that. Other entities can do that, but the Fed can't buy themselves. Right. So when people talk about the Fed printing money, it's just, it's not true. Not in that sense. No, they can create new dollars out of thin air, but it's base money. And then they can use that to buy certain financial assets. Okay. So they can print money for themselves. Yes. So for the Fed, their assets mainly consist of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. But are they? And when they do this, is it an independent action, or is it usually under some agreement working alongside the government that says, "Hey, the economy is struggling. You need to go in there and print some money and buy some of this." With the conception of central bank independence, that's yeah. that is legally and supposed to be a unilateral decision by the central bank based on their written mandate. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> so that's based on. Uh, employment levels and and inflation levels. That that's that's what they're supposed to do. Now, in times of crisis like the 1940s or 2020, you get a lot uh, working together. Basically, whenever whenever the system gets super high indebted, you start to get a lot of coordination, loosely or 
directly between the entities. Okay, so so in terms of money printing, they can print money to go and buy treasuries or go and buy they buy they buy equities as well, and they buy the Bank of Japan buys equities. The Fed uh, currently cannot. It cannot. I think it'd be really useful to go right back to the start. I'm sure we've done this before in the past, but actually explain like the relationship between the Fed, the Treasury, and the banks, and like yeah. how it actually happens. Sure. So the Treasury is the federal government. The, yeah. That's the arm of the federal government. So if Congress, you know, they they borrow money. Well, when they tax money, they yep. spend money, and if there's a dif- difference, they can also borrow money, and so. All those agreements to do that are passed by Congress, signed by the president, and then the Treasury's job is to figure out exactly how to finance that. They leave. They, is, it, is the Treasury uh, independent of the government? Or no, it's part of the executive branch. Part of the executive branch. So, is it part of? Um, uh, so, if there was a change of power, we know that sort of. Sort of uh, I mean, I've brought it up a few times. These guys keep laughing at me. They don't think I've read one book. It's called The Fifth Risk. <laughs> it comes up in every interview. <laughs> it doesn't. But there's so many things I learned from this. And one of the things was when Trump came into power, there's this whole process where they have to get all the staff ready for the handover of power and because it's basically something he didn't do. Is this one of the things that, that you the Treasury would be run by uh, the Democrats and if the Republicans win the next election, they would put all their own people in? Yes, Okay, and so they, have be, they, have be, they have to get through Congress. There are ways around it because you can have someone acting for a while that's not approved by Congress. But yes, basically the president, his staff, uh, and Congress put these people in. And was Mnuchin, he, was he head of yes. the Treasury? Yes. Okay. And so they have a what mandate to – what's their mandate, the Treasury? Um, their mandate essentially is to finance the government. Okay. Um, and so, for example, when Congress wants to spend something, they don't specify – Okay, issue like this many bonds in this denomination and this many bonds in this maturity. They they leave the details to the Fed, to the Treasury. Okay. So the Treasury has to figure out how to finance that. They also operate the mint, so okay. the, the physical printing of coins, for example. Okay, so they can print money. Yes, but even then, there's they, they can't they can't just print money and, <laughs> yeah, and give it out. There's legal restrictions. Okay, yes. so the Treasury they have their mandate. They also you know, finance the government's projects, which they have to go to Congress get approved. Do they hold an account themselves? They have an account at the Fed. They have an account at the Fed. It's called the yeah, Treasury General account. And when they want to spend money on certain things, they want to send $40 billion to Ukraine, Congress passes this. Where does that money come from? Uh, a couple ways. One is they tax it from the population. Yep. Uh, or they borrow it okay. from the population, either domestically or internationally. Now, this is where you get into actual money printing. Like, let's say we want to do, we want to repeat what happened during COVID. Yeah. Where they actually literally put money in people's accounts. Yes. This is not something the Fed could do on their own. The Treasury, most can do it on their own with a caveat that they they need someone to be able to buy their bonds because they, they didn't raise taxes on anyone. Okay. They didn't like tax me and then send money to my neighbor. They just sent money to my neighbor and they didn't have that money from anywhere. So they issued a bunch of treasuries. They, they basically took out a lot of debt. Yes. And then they sent money to people directly, yes. broad money, uh, in their accounts that they can actually spend. Now, who bought those treasuries? The Fed with <laughs> new dollars. Now, there's legal rules. So the Fed can't, they, they're not supposed to just buy from the treasury. Yeah. So the treasury sells it to like a, a, a you know, primary dealer, and then they sell it to the Fed. So the Fed is buying on the secondary market with new dollars to, you know, basically pay for all of this financing. So, you know, that you know, like a scene in a movie where, like, if generals want to fire a nuke, 
Yeah. You can't yeah. just have one general bit of fire nuke. Yeah. Two guys, two separate keys. Yeah. Yeah. So the the money printing essentially is like the Fed and the Treasury work together. They each put in like their key. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's how you print money. With that, if you have those powers combined, if you have Congress and then the Fed monetizing that spending, you could you could send everyone ten thousand dollars. You could send everyone hundred thousand dollars and it's not pulled from any other real source of dollars these dollars are just put into existence but there is implications of this because okay the the fed wants to let's let's go there's a bigger spending bill say they want to spend two trillion okay they haven't got enough money from tax as you said so all they can do is create bonds but they need to borrow of the bonds <laughs> there's not enough people out there who want to buy them so they go to the fed the fed prints money to buy the bonds Yes. And so they transfer the money and they take hold of the bonds. So the the Fed is essentially sat on a whole bunch of US treasury bonds. Yes. And mortgage-backed securities. And mortgage-backed yes. securities. What implication does that have for all the other people who in the uh, broader market are buying treasuries? Because it, it seems to me this is like, it's devaluing the idea of a treasury. Essentially, yeah. Now, it's, it's actually a very nuanced relationship because, you know, for most, until 2008... This was it was mostly financed by the private market. Yeah. Uh, once, but if you look at any country that gets, gets over say eighty percent sovereign debt to GDP, usually their central bank becomes their biggest buyer of like ongoing government debt from there, right? So because it's very hard if a country, you know, if Japan has two hundred fifty percent sovereign debt to GDP, which they do, it's hard to find balance space balance sheet space for that actual who wants to buy all that debt. The answer is not that many. Some you know their banks own some, their pensions own some. But all the excess, they need to sell essentially to their central bank through intermediaries. Um, and so that's, that's the system we find ourselves in. Now, until recently, there's actually, you, you would think that when the Fed's buying treasuries, it pushes down yields. Yeah. But it's actually not the case. So normally, when they're buying treasuries, yields are sometimes even going up. Uh, and that's because it's, it's creating risk on conditions. A lot of other private actors are then selling their bonds and buying equities. Uh, and so you don't get that correlation where, like, you know, when the Fed's buying, yields are lower. When they're not buying, yields are higher. That that's what that's also what throws people off. Now, during crises, that's when actually they drive yields down. So, for example, the 1940s, when we were fighting World War II, they capped yields. Right now, Japan's capping yields. Bank of Japan, um, so they can drive yields down. Is capping yields yield curve control? Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's usually a bad sign. They generally only resort to that when debt is so high relative to the economy that they force they force the market to accept negative real yields, even if the market is trying their hardest to override that. And then what is the next natural step after that? Well, it's not great. I mean, inflate like yeah. uh, devaluing those bonds. Yeah. So in, in the 1940s, that's, that's one of the cleanest examples we have of this with data. In the 1940s, the United States did yield curve control for nearly a decade, yeah. from the early 40s to the early 50s. And they capped short-duration treasuries at like three-eighths of a percent, and they capped long-duration treasuries at 2.5%. Inflation averaged about 6% during the decade. It spiked as high as 19%, and they held that you know, 0 to 2.5% band for, for most of that time. And so if you were holding treasuries, you, you, just, you lost. You, you know, got between, screwed. You got screwed. Um, uh, and eventually, that reduced debt to GDP because nominal GDP, largely because of the inflation component, went up significantly. Yeah. And so even even though federal debt never went down, it just kind of started eventually going sideways as they started to kind of shifting to austerity. 
um, we got the debt to GDP down. So it's having, just a, a sneaky way to pay off your debts. Yes. Huh. When the treasury, who who are the primary brokers? Are they people like Goldman and and banks like that? Yes. And when the treasury are going to issue these bonds, are they are they those banks guaranteed by the Fed that they will be a purchaser of those bonds? Yes. Yeah. Part of being a primary dealer is that you agree to buy treasuries at, at quote-unquote reasonable prices, that you're, you're always supposed to be bidding. Now, the problem is that you, do, you just don't, you have an infinite balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So, you, you can't always bid, but you're, you're supposed to always be able to bid. And that's why, generally, when you see debt to GDP get this high, there's this much sovereign debt in the market, usually the central bank starts taking chunks of the supply off the market so that no other balance sheet gets crowded out. Right. Essentially, if there was no QE, and if, if they forced treasures in the market and there was not enough buyers for them, the yield would start to rise and start attracting marginal new buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'd have to sell other assets to, to buy. To buy. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, there's kind of natural constraints on how much the market can buy, especially in a short period of time, let alone just in general, how, how much balance sheet they have that they want to allocate to treasuries at a certain yield. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady and Corey for years and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption, mining, and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show, so just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la, and use the code PETER. Next up, we have Ledger. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, And with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast 
from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages. Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. And with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation, and they have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency, and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only are Ledin a sponsor, I am now a customer of theirs. So if you want to find out more about Ledin, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Hmm. It's quite a neat little system if you get access to it. You yes. can control it. Yes. Um, it feels like there should be constraints on it. There should be... Because there are these rules, but there should be some constraints on the spending. It, it just feels ridiculous because everybody else is paying for a few people's small spending mistakes. Yeah. And the try the way they try to limit it is by having multiple, like that, going back to that generals analogy, there's multiple people that have to sign off on it when you get the crazy actions. So, for example, the the Fed, they're appointed by combination of the banks and by Congress and the president. Yeah. Uh, and then put into, uh, you know, long terms. So, they're you know, directly or indirectly backed by the people in some way. Then, in order to do the outright money printing, so not just Fed actions of, of buying treasuries, capping yield, but actually sending money to people's bank accounts in exchange for nothing, that requires Congress, the Senate, and then the President to sign off on it. So, you need a lot of, it's kind of like this distributed system where you need a lot of people all to agree to do it. It's not like one person is just out there doing it. No, but I've seen, I've, I've seen it in House of Cards, where all the horse trading goes on, you know, behind doors, right? Okay, you want that? Well, I'll I'll approve it if you sign off for this memorial to build in my town yes. or this uh, legislation to be passed. It's kind of, it's uh, it's, it's fucking bullshit. Sorry, excuse my language. In 2019, there was a a, a BlackRock paper called uh-huh. "Dealing with the Next Downturn," and it had a one of the advisors to the paper was Stanley Fisher, former former Fed uh, official, and they basically said, int- like, interest rates are super low, debt is super high there's not a lot of space left just from monetary stimulus. Because generally cutting interest rates um, encourages more borrowing. It kind of helps reflate the debt bubble, right? So that, that's why that's considered stimulus. But they said, look, interest rates are already so low, we're not, that's not going to be a very powerful tool because they, they can't really go much below zero, right? So they said in the next recession, that's not going to be enough. So you're going to have to do large fiscal stimulus up to maybe including helicopter money. The problem is that that can be inflationary and can drive yields up, which can then kind of defeat the purpose of stimulus. So you, the central banks can have to do a soft form of collaboration where they buy a lot of those bonds and, and hold yields pretty low for a while. Um, the problem with that system, and this is all in the paper, that it could get runaway inflation and that therefore you'd have to have a way to really control that. This was all written in 2019, and they then followed it step by step in 2020 and 2021, of course, they didn't say there's going to be a pandemic. I mean, they probably didn't expect this big of a number. Then as BlackRock, they maybe started it. <laughs> um, when, sorry, I'm just, I'm just trying to get this all straight. When the Fed buy the bonds from the primary dealer, they pay with reserves, right? Yes. And is there any difference between how they can be spent to like a, a quote unquote like real dollar? Well, you can't just go out and buy 
coffee with reserves. Yeah. Right. It's wholesale money. It's bank. It's money at the bank. So basically, a, a bank can spend their reserves, like when they send money to another bank, you know, they make a loan, things like that. But that goes to another bank's reserves. So, so any individual bank can adjust their own reserves, but the banking system as a whole can't create or destroy reserves. So it just acts as like collateral for them. Yes. Right. Do you see that uh, money printing has made the news and the political landscape in the UK? No. Uh, so during the leadership debates, because we're, uh, I don't know if you saw that Boris Johnson uh, stepped down, but there's a, a leadership battle at the moment. And um, the previous Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, he's one of the people vying for Prime Minister. And he's discussing what he's going to do about inflation. And I can't remember who came, one, one of the previous Tory leaders came out and you accused him of being, being the money printer. And blaming him for inflation. And that's the first time I've directly seen politicians admitting there is essentially a money printing process. Usually they just they just talk about borrowing. They never talk about the fact that they're money printing and what the implications of this are. What was the who was the if you search for Richie Sunap money printer, see if you can find who it was who said it. I can't remember his name. He was a previous Tory leader. One one point I'll make, one thing I find in macro circles, because all, all of this recent does the print Fed print money debate, this all happened in 2020 in, in macro circles. Okay. That, that's why I wrote those articles back then. That's uh, That was like the most common question on interview circuits back then, usually in these broader macro type Ma of interviews. Macro Twitter. Macro Twitter, yeah. Fin, <laughs> fin twit. Fin twit. Um, and I, I generally find, not, not any one analyst in particular, but I find a lot of analysts are kind of fighting the last battle, which is common in any, any industry. So in 2008... When the Fed started doing QA, you know, for the first time in, in modern history, they actually did it in the 40s, but they didn't call it back that it, back then. So they started doing QE for the first time in modern history, buying treasuries, buying mortgage-backed securities. A lot of people were like, this is going to be hyperinflation. They're just printing money. This is, you know, look, the balance sheet just doubled. Oh, look, it tripled. You know, it, it's going to be the end of the world. And that obviously never happened. In, in fact, you had, you know, pretty low inflation for the entire 2010s decade compared to even even when you adjust for the, the the CPI shenanigans, you know, if you just look at commodity prices, they were generally weak that whole decade, just as, a, as an example. So you had pretty weak inflation that decade, despite the fact that you had a lot of balance sheet expansion. And that's what they were missing at the time, what those analysts that were expecting all this inflation were missing, was that, that there was no transmission mechanism to get that money to the public, right? So Inflation happens when people's broad money increases. So everybody gets more money in their bank account and they still have roughly the same amount of stuff they can buy with it. Is that because if it's the mechanism isn't getting to the public, it's, it's getting locked up in different corporate places? No, it's just staying in bank reserves. So, right. and, and essentially it's getting into financial markets. So there's actually a pretty strong correlation globally with QE and asset prices. Right, so you can have commodities and, and general prices not increasing, but you could have the stock market... Continue yeah, it can be great for the stock market, great for the real estate market. Um, basically, inflation for financial assets. But that, then it sounds to me like QE really is just friends giving friends money. It just collateralizes the banks, right? Yeah. Kind of, but remember, when they do QE, they're taking an asset in return. Of course. So the Fed is creating a new dollar and then swapping that brand new dollar for a treasury or mortgage-backed security. And that adds liquidity to the market. But it's not like the it's not like the bank that received that just were, was given it. They had to give it up. But essentially, then what they do? Let's say you are a pension, or you're a bank, and you own. Let's say you're a pension, and the, the Fed wants to do QE. You can sell some of your bonds to the Fed, and you can go out and buy other bonds, 
or you can go out and buy stocks. Hmm. Uh, and so basically that money does get into capital markets. It just doesn't get into consumer accounts. It's not like I'm going, it's not like my bank account's a thousand dollars richer and I'm going to go buy more oil with it. Yeah, right? but it's like it's good for CEOs and, and Wall Street bankers. It's crap for mom and dad. Yes. Shop. It's, yeah, it's good for financial markets. And therefore, that, that surely that drives the wealth divide. In general, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I did a whole article on this because this is also something that it, it's good for a meme, but it's oversimplified. And so, for example, if QE was the biggest driver of wealth concentration, you would expect to see logically that countries that did more QE as a percentage of their GDP would have more wealth concentration, right? We actually find not the case, and in fact, a, a somewhat of an inverse correlation. So no one's done really more QE than Japan. Okay. And Japan has oddly low wealth concentration. Um, when you look at Europe, they did more QE than the US, but less than Japan. Uh, depending on what country you look at, they generally are uh, less wealth concentrated than the United States, uh, usually a little bit more than Japan. The United States did less QE than you, the you know ECB or Japan. We have more wealth concentration, so it's not the only, it's, it's it's not the only variable that affects this. That that's my point. There's there's a bunch of other variables, and there a lot of them are fiscal. Right. So where you where you disagreed with Jeff? Jeff was saying QE doesn't drive inflation. You disagree with him and said it can do. So can you essentially both be right? If there's a mechanism to get the money out to the general public, that will drive inflation. But if the mechanism is just to shore up the banks, it doesn't drive inflation. For the most part, yes. So QE by itself is not a very inflationary thing for consumer prices, meaning the price of commodities, the price of everyday goods, because there's not more money chasing more goods. What's inflationary is when there's large fiscal stimulus that is generally monetized by QE, and then that fiscal stimulus gets out to the public. And when I talk about the last battle, so a lot of people are saying, oh, that whole period from 2008 to 2014, all that QE, it wasn't inflationary. I'm like, well, yes, but also there was not a lot of fiscal stimulus back then. You had, you had around the margins, you had fiscal stimulus. But if you looked at broad money supply, there was no big spike in that whole period. You had a big spike in base money. Uh, you recapitalized the banking system. But you did not have a spike in broad money, meaning that the accounts that people like me and you have at our banks... Uh, so the actual money in circulation among market participants, that did not really increase at any sort of notable rate. But when the 330 million or how many people got their stimulus checks, what were they, $1,600? It, it, we had a couple rounds of it. Yeah. We had 1,200, I think then we had 600, then we had, what, 1,400. Then you had childcare tax credits. Then you had PPP loans for small businesses that turn into grants. A bunch of different rounds of stimulus. And do we know how much of that was in total? Like the total value of that? Last I checked, something like six trillion. Six trillion. So that is six trillion of new broad money. Yes, and and so unlike the whole 2008 period, if you look at a chart of broad money, it goes straight up. Right. Because that that now there's actually a mechanism that's getting at the public. It's not just base money going up; it's broad money going up. People actually have more money in their accounts that they can go and spend on restaurants and and things and rent and houses and whatever they want. So I think one of the things that's been getting confusing recently is that we've seen a massive increase in prices of a range of things. You call it gas, we call it petrol, that's gone up significantly. Energy prices have gone up. Uh, travel, travel now is one of the things I've noticed. My flight costs have gone up massively. You know, like everything's going up, right? But what Jeff was saying is that you have to separate what is inflation 
and what is an increase in prices. And some of the increases in prices have come from a couple of things. So we have a war in Ukraine that has caused an increase in the energy prices. So that's one thing. Without that war, that might not have happened. He said, uh, also, you've had, coming out of a pandemic, when we kind of had a pandemic, there was essentially a yeah, massive increase in demand for things. And you know, one example would be the uh, airport struggling in the UK because they laid off all the baggage handlers and they haven't got them back. So there's those things. Essentially, but what we have, and he, the previous example we showed, the similar uh, inflation, inflation of prices was after World War II. That was a very similar, that's the chart he showed us. But the problem we've got now is that we've got that happening at the same time that we've just come out of massive stimulus. So some people are blaming all of these increases on price. They're kind of saying all this inflation is coming down to the the what the government's done but actually it's a myriad of things am i making sense there are other factors yeah, yeah. so and one thing i've made a point that i made in my articles is that one big variable is the money printing yes especially you know specifically the broad money the other variable is things like commodity capex you know have we invested enough to make commodities abundant and cheap or not mm-hmm. because if we have just unlimited you know if we had a world where we had unlimited oil and you print a lot of dollars you might not get a big you know, price spike in oil because there's just endless amounts of it. Everyone has excess. And so as soon as the price goes up a little bit, they're like, sure, you know, I'll sell the oil. But if you have a constraint in how much oil exists and there's a lot more money in circulation that wants to buy that oil, the price is going to go up quite a bit. So it's there are real-world constraints on logistics and, and commodities, those things in particular, that are the other side. They're the supply variable with money printing and money supply being the demand variable. Um, if you look at the 1940s, and this is the part where I just disagree with Jeff on. He would say that's not an example of real inflation. That's that's supply side problems. So I, I, I you know, I, I have these charts that I've u- used in articles. For example, if you look at the 1940s, you had these huge spikes in inflation, like yes. huge spikes, and it comes back down. Then another huge spike comes back down. Um, when that's all said and done, though, if you just kind of zoom out, at what did the CPI do in the 1940s? Each one of the spikes, it went up, and then it stayed at a new higher plateau. Yes, and then went up, and it stayed at a new higher plateau. Then so went up. If it's not coming down, then it's, it's not transitory. That is because the increase. That's because supply. of the increase in money supply. So the speed with which it happens in a short period of time is related to one, how much money is being created in a short period of time, and also what are the specific bottlenecks. So there are certainly individual prices during, say, the 1940s or during now that spiked to crazy levels. Let's say in March. Let's say in April 2020, everybody wants Clorox because you know everyone wants to disinfect everything. Yeah. Chlor- there's a huge Clorox shortage. You know. People are like, oh, well, I'll give you Clorox, but we triple the price. So when that period ends, Clorox is probably going to come down in price a lot. Yeah. That, that's, that's not going to come back up. To, that, that's not a higher plateau. Now, I mean, some of it might be, but mo- like some of the extreme spike will come off. Hmm. Um, but it's the aggregate average price level. When that stays permanently higher plateau, that's because there was more money permanently in the system. We saw that in the 1940s, so we had these crazy spikes, but when it settled back down, it settles at a much higher plateau each time. We saw that in the 70s. We saw that, uh, to some extent, in the 2000s, less extreme. And then we're seeing that now. So, for example, when Chipotle raises wages and raises burrito prices, that we're never seeing those. Come it's not then. like when this is all done, they're like, okay, we're going back to our prior burrito price. That those, those are permanently higher because there's permanently more money in the system now. Yes, yeah, so we had, I don't know if you saw it, we had some increase in wage increases in the UK announced yesterday. Uh, nurses up 5%, was it? Not sure. Yeah, we've, um, so there's, there's a lot of striking at the moment in the UK. 
a lot of union striking and various things from pilots and trains and you know, everyone's striking because we've, we're seeing big, you know, quite high inflation. And there, there's been a massive increase in wages, something I've not, to a level I've not actually seen for the public sector. Uh, it was around 5% for nurses, similar for, is it teachers? Have you got it? Uh, nurses went from, yeah, 32,000 to 37,000. Are they not giving, yeah, okay. Uh, I've not seen teachers. Teachers and then police as well. Yeah. And these, this is a massive commitment by the government. Um, those, those, and, and, and they're people, never coming back down. They're never coming back down. Also, no. these people are pissed off because they know what inflation's at. Yeah. So they know they're still being screwed. Yeah. In the United States, we had multi decade high wage increases in a year. So something like 6% on average, which is actually a pay cut in real terms. Yeah. So official inflation is 9%. Uh, if you measure it in a couple other ways, it's probably at least low double digits, maybe 12%, let's call it. And you got a 6% wage. So you actually got like a wage cut in real terms. You can buy less restaurant outings with it. You can buy less uh, fuel with it. You can buy less house with it. Yeah. So one of the things that's coming up a lot at the moment is where people are talking about civiliz civilizational decline. We had it with Jeet, didn't mm -hmm. we? I think even Jeff brought it up. So in these scenarios, you know, these nurses' wages are going from, did you say 32 to 37,000 pounds? Yeah. A £5,000 pay rise would you know, seem like a good thing. Um, but we know all these people, everything they're spending their money on is getting more expensive. Houses are getting smaller and more expensive. And some people can't afford them. Shopping is getting more expensive. You see in our town centers, we're getting more and more of the big retailers leaving and more of the low-cost retailers come, coming in. There's a complete squeezing of the middle class. Is this happening purely because of inflation? Is inflation driving this? Is this the damage it does? It just erodes out value? Yes, but it's correlated. I mean, basically, inflation's happening in part because that's happening. Yeah. And then inflation circles back and makes it worse. Inflation doesn't come out of a vacuum, right? If we didn't have super high debt already, if we didn't have these, if we didn't spend decades building a very kind of fragile but efficient global supply chain, we would be in a better place to absorb some sort of economic shock, right? Um, so because we're already in a very disadvantaged position, um, and we already had issues building, and we haven't invested a lot in natural resources for the past five years mm -hmm. uh, globally, um, when we get an external shock, and then we, you, it's like you're facing then a de deflationary crash, which deflation's good in a low debt system, but in a very high debt system, that the whole system is built on credit expansion and inflation, like mild inflation, and you get a deflationary crunch, that threatens all the debt in the system. Because that, it that, becomes even more expensive to pay it off. Yes. It, it threatens the, whole, the way the whole system functions because everyone's debts harden relative to their economic output. Who benefits in the deflationary environment? People with savings? Savings and bondholders. Savings and bondholders. Yes. Okay. Unless it gets bad enough that the whole system collapses. Right. So if if all the banks, you know, banks hold treasuries as their collateral, uh, the Fed holds treasuries as their collateral, um, you have savings in the bank. If there's a big enough deflationary crash and there's no money printing, let's say, the Fed's not printing money to buy bonds, eventually it squeezes so hard that defaults happen. You, you would default all the way up to the top because there's just not enough dollars to support all the debts and, and to refinance all the debts. You would get a, uh, so basically you would deflate until it's worth nothing. So it would like get more and more valuable and then it'd be like a Thanksgiving turkey where it's, then it's not worth anything. Right. So the other option is they inflate. So they print money, they hand it out to people, they keep the system going. They add 
more chairs to a game of musical chairs. There's not enough people that can sit down, so they keep adding more chairs. But the government has the most to lose in this scenario because they hold the most debt. So that's why they have incentive to drive inflation. Yes. Now, when I spoke with Ovik Roy, we talked about the compounding impacts of inflation on the poor. And he said even at a low level, even at 2%, it has a compounding in, uh, impact on the poor. But at the same time, if a deflation environment is that catastrophic, how do we even know what a fair system is? Like, what is, what is the optimal, Lynn, solve, solve all economics for me right now. <laughs> well, that's a good question. And you've got five minutes. <laughs> I would say the problem is the system we have now is so artificial. Yeah. Right? So... It's based on this, it's like the America Online of money. It's like this walled garden, right? <laughs> of like this carefully curated environment. So people have money in the banks. You know, the, the banks have loans out to other entities. And there's centralized policymakers that are kind of making sure that it doesn't hit the guardrails. If inflation gets too high, they try to pull it down. If, it, if you start to deflate and you threaten the, the whole collapse of the system, you, you try to add more money to the system. And essentially, there's more debt than there is money. So that's a problem. Okay. Right? I mean, this is inherently a Ponzi scheme, essentially. If, yeah. if there's more debt than there's money, it means those debts in aggregate can never be paid down. It's not designed to ever end. The system can, it only, it can only grow. Okay. That, that's, that's problem number one. So it can only ever grow. There's more, every, all, do, all debts are claims for dollars, and there's yep. not that many dollars. And so when you start to get too many of those claims called in at once, a, some sort of deflationary you know, impact or just massive crisis, they say, well, if you just let this play out, everything goes to zero because there's more debts than there are dollars. People will sell assets to get dollars until just it, the whole system eats itself down to nothing and then... But is that kind of what's happening now and why the dollar's going up so, in so much value? In a way, that's happening globally. Yeah. Yes. And so basically, when they, when they start to see that happening, let's say domestically, let's finish that point, they say, well, we're not going to let that happen, so we're just going to create more currency units. We're going to add more chairs to the game of musical chairs. So the whole point of musical chairs, for the one person listening doesn't know, there's more people than there are chairs. So someone's not going to get a seat when they all sit down. We were getting taught scarcity at birthday parties, and we didn't even <laughs> yeah. realize. Yes. So, But the central bank and fiscal policymakers together can be like, well, let's add another chair to the system. And you just keep adding chairs to make sure that there's all, everyone can always sit down, or at least most enough people can sit down that you don't get it all implode. It's like a participation trophy. And who benefits or hurt is, is partially based on income levels, but it's also partially based on specifics. And so if you look at actually the 40s and the 70s, some of the most inflationary decades in the United States, we actually had wealth concentration contract a little bit which means that it actually spread out a little bit. And that's because a lot of the people that were really impaired were actually the, the, the wealthier people. But it really depends on the specifics of how it's handled. So for example, if you're middle class and you have a house with a fixed rate mortgage, um, you probably actually benefit from some degree of inflation because your mortgage is getting inflated away, your house value is going up. Um, and if you can roughly keep your wages more or less in line with inflation, give or take, you're doing okay in that environment. Um, if you're super rich and you have, you know, a lot, uh, a lot of assets, but not a lot of debts, you know, you're kind of, you're fine with the system. You're not necessarily inflating away a ton of debt, but your assets are holding up. If you are impoverished and you have a little bit of savings, but you also have credit card debt, but the credit card debt is at a super high interest rate, so that's not getting inflated away, you're screwed, right? So there's, there's pocket, and if, or if you're a retiree and you're, you know, getting social security checks and you're not, you're not like a wealthy retiree. Like you're, you're, 
you're making in meat on a fixed income, if that income is not keeping up with true inflation, you're getting squeezed. So there are, there are pockets of winners and losers throughout the system that are not necessarily just what income level you're at. I think we need, it's almost like we need a decentralized form of fixed money to protect ourselves. One that was system. like super auditable. Super audible. Self-custodial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, just an observation with Jeff, what I thought was super interesting is when we reached out to him, he was like, he's like, I'm not really like into Bitcoin or crypto. And I said, don't worry, we always talk to people who aren't. And then at the start of the show, he started describing what he thought a perfect money would be. And he basically described Bitcoin. But what he did say is that his main issue with Bitcoin is it can't be a medium of exchange while it's so volatile because it's that would be catastrophic and we came to that conclusion it was like well you know if it continues to be volatile because we what we were questioning last night over a drink me and danny was like if it's if bitcoin's always volatile this might be the case then we're always going to need something stable as a medium of exchange alongside it um do you think through that much at all like the volatility side of things well with bitcoin's kind of curve of adoption i would put it into two separate camps so one is when it's this new thing and it's reaching whatever total adjustable market it's it's going to one day reach we don't mm. we don't know that that's the future is always unknowable we don't know all the, the full scale risk but let's say it's going to go up to some very large share of, of the market right now it's nowhere near that it's held by actually a pretty small percentage of the population um, there's hidden pockets of leverage in the system like we've seen with some of these lenders. For example, it's often used as collateral to, to make bets on altcoins and things like that. And so there are multiple things that can add or decrease volatility. So when it goes up in price a lot, a lot of new people discover it for the first time. Or at this point, they've heard of it, but they might not have really looked into it. And they, they start to look into it again. So there's new buyers flood in. That adds upward volatility. And then when you get that leverage and that speculation, you get sharp downward volatility. Now, if you go through, let's say, five more of these cycles, and we're 20 years in the future, and Bitcoin is more steady state, and it's held by 30% of the world population, whatever number it is, you'd expect it to be a lot less volatile in that environment than it is now. So I generally agree that in the really early phases, unless you specifically need censorship resistance, or unless you're in an unbanked environment, for a lot of people in developed countries, Bitcoin is not the ideal medium of exchange, unless they, they, they're deplatformed, or they just really want to use it, right? Um, they're, they're super into it. Um, but it's really about what it looks like years from now. And I think part of what makes it valuable now as a medium exchange is the fact that it gives you that optionality. It gives you that, um, that resistance to deplatforming, that portable money that you can move around the world, self-custodial. I think those are the attributes that make it super valuable now. And then as we see more maturity, more adoption, more lightning network, better, better user experience, I think that that makes it better and better as a medium of exchange. Awesome. Danny, any final questions? Uh, yeah. This is like going back. <laughs> I've got another loads. hour of questions. <laughs> this is going back in the conversation a bit, but um, Jeff talked about the not, like, there being like a lack of liquidity and that QE doesn't add liquidity to the system. But I think like both the, the system and liquidity are kind of like vague-ish definitions. Can you explain actually what liquidity is in so that's where I, would, I think I would disagree with Jeff if he, made, if he made that statement. So basically, let's use an example. So liquidity is basically how much buyers and sellers there are um, and whether or not, if you're a large holder of an asset, if you could sell a ton and not really move the price too much, that's a pretty liquid market. Um, whereas if you go to sell it and that moves the price of the whole market, that's not a very, there's not enough buyers and sellers to just absorb that. It's like what we see in crypto, right? Mm -hmm. The Yeah. 
the shitters of the shit coins have low liquidity and the price moves around more. Yeah, there are tiny cryptos that like I could move, yep. right? Which is that's obviously super low liquidity. Show off. Um, no. <laughs> I, I'm, you She's think, crushed it recently. <laughs> so the, going back to an example, in, in March 2020, you had uh, a lot of foreign sellers of treasuries sell their treasuries at roughly the same time. And that's because they needed dollars. Yep. And one thing they can do if they need dollars is they sell their treasuries. So they sold their treasuries. The market went completely liquid. It, it's like, it literally broke. The treasury market, which is supposed to be the deepest, most liquid market in the world, along with currencies and oil and a couple other giant markets, broke. They're basically bid-ask spreads were very wide. And there just weren't a lot of buyers and sellers. The whole market froze. So the, treasury, the Federal Reserve had an emergency meeting and then over the next three weeks, they did a trillion dollars in QE. It was the fastest pace of QE we've ever seen in the U.S. to reliquify that market. They basically created a lot of new dollars, and they became the marginal buyer of treasuries because a lot of entities on net wanted to sell treasuries, and there's no, there's no bid, there's no buyers. It is not because they thought the price was wrong or they thought X, Y, Z. It's because they just didn't have the balance sheet capacity to absorb that. There was no buyer that said, "I have a lot of dollars, and I want to buy a lot of treasuries right now." So the Federal Reserve came in and they, they did reliquify that. We also saw that in uh, late 2019, the repo spike. Yes. Where first you had repo issues. So the Fed reliquified the repo market by participating directly in the repo market. But then also they went out and started buying T-bills because there was basically an oversupply of T-bills relative to reserves. Foreigners were not uh, buying a lot of T-bills at the time. And so the Federal Reserve came in, bought T-bills with new dollars. And so they, ab they absolutely do reliquify markets. Now, it's not, it's, any one entity is not getting free dollars, um, but it's adding liquidity to the market. That, that's essentially what the, what the main function is. And that's especially important when the treasury wants to issue a lot of treasuries at once, or if for whatever reason you have a lot of existing holders that want to sell at once. And then, of course, in the Federal Reserve's, you know, if you go back to some of their older quotes, this goes back to the idea of, is it temporary or is it permanent, right? So the Federal Reserve, back after the initial QE, after subprime mortgage crisis, some of the Fed presidents were like, this is, you know, look, we're, once market returns normal, we're going to sell these treasuries. Uh, that We just added liquidity to the market. We're not a permanent financier of government debt. We didn't just print money to buy bonds and hold them forever. That would be deficit monetization. That would be Banana Republic stuff. No, we, we just we added liquidity to the market, but when liquidity returns we're going to gradually sell these treasuries back into the market. Right. And of course, you know, every time they try or a little bit, they have to stop pretty quickly. So you keep having, you keep ratcheting higher in both the total treasuries held as well as the percentage of treasuries held um, because they are basically a permanent source of balance sheet financing for the treasury. Boom. I've actually got one more. Um, <laughs> he also said that since 2008, banks have been like relatively risk averse and they're not taking enough risk now. Do you think that's true? I think that's true, but I think I'd phrase it differently. I think it, so it's true that banks are being far more conservative with their lending standards. Um, but the difference is I think I would describe that as a good thing. Um, I, I don't think we need more and more credit creation. Now, in, in the context of a system as currently designed that needs credit creation, that's a bad thing. So I agree with him on the facts that are happening. He, he's right that, that there's much slower loan growth. Banks are being far more conservative with their lending. Um, and that is, is basically impairs the normal fee, you know, kind of growth, economic growth prospects because there's just less credit available. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's because the system as itself 
is already over too much credit in the system as is, and it's not something that can keep growing forever. It's just basically it's an, it's inherently flawed design uh, as it is now. It's all a bit mental. It's all a bit crazy. Well, I I think we need to try and get you and Jeff in a room together and go rattle through this. I think it'd be very popular. Well, actually, we said about today. I think we need to get you, Preston, uh, Jeff, Luke. Who else? Greg. Greg. Yeah. Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah. Jeff. Booth. Let's get you all in a room. Just rattle this shit up. Lynn, you're amazing. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talk about Bitcoin. All right. I will see you all very, very soon.